Let me ask you a question. What is the most important work of the church? And Shane, I asked Caroline, she came to my office and she says, well, am I going to be part of the sermon tonight? I says, well, I can make you part of it. I said, I did Sunday, I'll do it tonight if you want. I said, yeah, I want to be a part of it. I said, okay. I said, what's the most important thing that the church does? And she says, this is, this is priceless. Well, there's two parts. <laughs> I was like, what's the most important? That's two-part answer. I said, okay, give me the two parts. She says, prayer and outreach. Now, that, that's kind of hard to beat right there. Was that pretty good? So you tell her she was on it. And she was telling me about a dilemma she had with a girl that she was discussing this situation with and that they just disagreed with that. Fancy that. They just disagreed about the spiritual things that they was talking about. But God bless her, man. I, I just love seeing her walk into my office because she's thinking about the things of God. And that's a compliment. But what is the most important? To me, those two answers kind of embody it, but I'm just going to take a little bit of a, a clear slant on those two answers. Um, but here we pray. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer. We worship like we did this evening. And thank you, Brandon, for leading us in worship. And, and we walked into Foothills Assembly of God Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, Sunday ago. And the sanctuary is probably twice the size of this sanctuary. And there was 50 people there, including us. But to that song leader's credit, and the woman that was the other vocalist and the two other musicians, they started worshiping like the house was full. And I've always said this. Is the Lord worthy of your best no matter what the setting is? And no matter how many empty seats. And this is why I love Wednesday nights. I wish every one of these seats was filled. But the Lord is just as worthy of my best tonight as he is if it was filled. And somehow we make a distinction that if we have a better setting, the Lord becomes more worthy. And when you can learn to worship the Lord when you don't feel like it, when you're not in the mood, what does his worthiness have to do with our mood? When Jimmy Swaggart fell... The tomb did not suddenly become occupied with a corpse. Jesus was still alive and well, and if people's faith crashed with him, they had their faith in the wrong one. And when you can put your eyes on the Lord and you lock in on the Lord, and no matter what's going on around you, God loves what he calls a sacrifice of praise. That means it's a laborious thing for you to do because you're going against maybe your emotions, how you feel physically, the situation you're in, what's just happened that day. But when you can say, Lord, you're worthy of my praise, if I had the worst day of my life today, you are still deserving of my best today, and I'm going to worship you like it's the best day of my life. And I want to tell you, God will invade your worst day and make it your best day if you can learn to worship him that way. We worship, we study, we teach, we learn, we give, we love. 
But in that list is missing a word. And it's the part B of Caroline's answer. It's outreach. Look at the description. We're going to take, go to Acts chapter 2. Look at the description of the activity of the church. Now, mind you, there was no books written. There was no, there was no New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. And what they had was a verbal admonition from the Lord to go and wait in an upper room in Jerusalem until they're empowered by the invasion of the Holy Spirit into their lives and that then they would receive the power to do what he's commissioned them to do. Until then, they would not have the power to do it. So here it is, the church's birth. There's no manual. There's no example. There's not a Christian church. There's no church. The church is birthed through that invading, powerful wind of God's presence coming in and filling those 120 people. And toward the end, you get the, the day of Pentecost as described, but when you get toward the end of Acts 2, it talks about the activity of the church. When things settled down and the church had to be the church, they were not in an upper room, they're now in life. They're about life. Life has to go on. They can't stay in the upper room. They can't stay in that place of great power. They have to come down and live life. How did they live life? How did the early church live life? Starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They made a commitment to what the apostles were teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We've mentioned that earlier. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, let's just make a list here. The apostles' doctrine, what the apostles was teaching and sharing with them. You could say that's discipleship. This, this is, they're giving the teachings of Jesus to, you know, Jesus told them, says, and I command you, teach them whatever I've taught you. Just teach them what I've taught you. You don't have to come up with something new. Teach them with what I've taught you over those three years. And within the, the context that Jesus died and rose again. That made everything that Jesus said fit as a result of that. So they were devoted to that. They were devoted to fellowship, which is the word koinonia. It means having everything in common, being together. Breaking bread and prayer and being in the temple courts 
is really a sign of worship. Breaking bread is not what we call fellowship. When we say fellowship, the single most important part of our fellowship is what? Fun. Fun? Let's go have some fellowship. So where are we going to go? We're going to go to some place that has food. We read, that would be fun. Fun eating food. That makes it fun. It depends on where you go. But uh, when we say fellowship, well, why don't you come over to the house and we're going to have some fellowship? Well, it's going to be like coffee and carrot cake. Huh? Can you do better than carrot cake? To me, you can't get better than carrot cake. And maybe with some ice cream on it. I mean, now we're talking about fun fellowship. But that's not what the Bible means by fellowship. Now, now we've baptized the word, and we've given its own meaning. This means we eat, and we have a good time. There's nothing wrong with that, but it goes deeper than that. It's actually having commonness among us that where we share our lives. We become part of each other's life. We're not like just bumping up against each other. The, the closest I've come to any group of people was at the bottom of an escalator in Moscow, Russia. We were human sardines. That is the most chaotic. That, that escalator, it was, they told us it was the world's tallest escalator. It had to be at least six stories up. And you got really close to Russian people because somebody was against your back and they had you against somebody else's back. And if you didn't like closeness, you're tough. And I think sometimes in, in, in the body of Christ, we like that locatively. We, we're here, but we're not, we're not in fellowship. We bump up against each other, but we, we don't know anything about each other. I guarantee if we packed the place out Sunday, there'd be somebody just excited about having it packed out, but that, do you really care about who's sitting in front of you? Or what, do you really care about who's sitting across? Do you even go over there and say, I, you know, I don't recognize you. Well, they'll say something like this. Well, I've been coming here two years. Now, that happens before. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, we're, I've been coming for three years. Oh, that's great. Well, it's just a large crowd, but I just kind of missed you. But he's talking about fellowship. Going down, it says, devoted to others' needs. They sell stuff, they pool their resources so that there's no one lacking. That's ministry. And then the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved as a result of the church's outreach. Because they were being saved because of the promotion and the proclamation of the gospel. That's community as well. That's evangelism. That's outreach. Now, let's touch on each of these just for a little bit. Worship. Worship. The act of loving God. You think about worship. It's, it it's, comes off the word worth, and it's giving worth to something. It's giving value. Larry Burkett used to say, I can tell what you worship by looking at your checkbook register. I can tell what's important to you 
Because the Lord says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. Worth, we put worth. Now, when we make the Lord, remember the temptation of Jesus? You remember one of the temptations? What the, the devil had the audacity to tell Jesus he would give him all the kingdoms of earth if he'd just do one thing. Bow down and worship me. That lets you know what Satan's really after. He's after worship. Not just worship, but worship that belongs to God. He wants to rob the worship that belongs to God, and he wants to take that. He's a thief. So what did Jesus say? He said, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord your God, in him only shall you serve. So Jesus linked worship and service together. That worship is not just a loving God, it's living that love out for him. So that's, that's a very important part of the church. I love worship. I learned to worship way, way back when I absolutely could not stand to go to where I was going to church. And the reason I went is because I was on staff at that church. And I complained every Sunday for several weeks. Brenda, you know where we're talking about. And I said, I hate going there. I hate it. There's so much tension in the place. And I was just, I was miserable until the service was over. I hope there's no one like that here. But I went because I was on staff. And the Lord spoke to me one day about what I just said to you at the start of the service. Am I worthy of your worship? Am I deserving of your worship? You're going to hold back what I deserve because you don't like stuff that's going on. And I looked down, and he really spoke to me. He says, where you're standing is your sanctuary. Worship me. Worship me. This is your sanctuary. And man, I raised my hands, and I started having freedom in worship. I started enjoying the presence of the Lord. And I started looking forward to church. And I, I, I never forgot that lesson. When I'm sick, I'm ill, I'm not, I don't feel good, or I didn't get much sleep, or my back's hurting, or something going on, is he still deserving of worship? And Jesus told the enemy, you're not getting any of my worship. Worship God. Worship him only. And here's the second thing. Evangelism is the act of loving the lost. If worship is the act of loving God, you cannot do, well, you can do evangelism, but you can't do evangelism right if you don't love who you're evangelizing. If love for the lost is not the motivation for your evangelism, if your motivation for evangelism is that the church needs to grow and we need to get more people in here, that's not going to work. We're just doing marketing. 
If we don't love their souls, if we don't care about where they're going to spend eternity, we're not going to say anything to them. And if we're not saying anything to people who are lost, it's because we don't care about where they spend eternity. I mean, we, you know, we can say that's not my gifting. But, you know, I, I look at the Great Commission. It says, now, to those who have the gifting of doing this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. I don't, I don't read it like that. But he told us, if God so loved the world that he sent his only son, he also so loved the world that he sent his church into the world to reach them through his son. And we are not to love the world, the things of the world. We're supposed to love the people in the world enough to share the gospel with them. Here's three things about this generation that we're in. The generation outside of the realm of salvation. They want to know why they need salvation. We cannot just tell them. They need a reason. I'm not talking about using reason. I'm talking about they really want to know why. And then they want to know how, which is experience. How can I experience that kind of salvation? They may not be asking for that, but we can, I think there's a hunger and a thirst. Like Billy Graham said, there's a, there's a hole, there's a vacuum within every human heart that only Jesus can fill. People try to fill it with drugs, sex, finances, wealth, busyness, whatever, whatever they're pursuing, whatever is their idols and their worship. That's what they're giving themselves to. That's what they spend their money on. That's what they pursue. Because there's something there that they want fulfillment and the Lord is the only fulfillment. They're not ever going to be satisfied. They'll have to keep pouring more and more and more of those things because it does not last. The only lasting peace anyone has is when Jesus comes into their heart. And the last is they want to see the good news in action. They want to see people live out what they say. Not just hear what I say, but they want to see it lived out. Discipleship is the act of training. They were committed to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' doctrine? Can I advance a little bit past Acts 2? The apostles' doctrine for us is all the New Testament. Because they wrote it, they wrote it down as they lived it and taught it. At first, it was oral. It was the oral gospel. It was preached orally for probably about 30 to 40 years. The apostles strictly went on remembering what Jesus told them to preach and teach. And all of a sudden, there became a necessity to write it down. And we have the four Gospels, the book of Acts, the history of the church, and then the epistles that really explain theologically the application of the truth that they preached. But that, was, that is for us to continue in the apostles' doctrine is to know the New Testament, including the last book of the Bible, which was written by one of those apostles. So, you know, I could, when I discovered the book of Romans when I was in Bible college, I overdosed on Romans. 
My Bible that I use, the Zondervan Mark Reference Bible, which I do not have a good enough eyesight to read today, even with glasses. But in college, I could read it. The edge of the pages in Romans are soiled because once I discovered, watch Benny's book, The Normal Christian Life, once I got through that, when I took Romans under Dr. R. Paul Wood, I was, I was like, where have I been? Has this been in my Bible all this time? And where have I been? What have I been reading? My goodness, that is good stuff. And we can have, in Luther, Luther, Romans became his favorite book. Because that's the book that introduced him to justification by faith. And, and he got saved as a Roman Catholic priest. That had been a priest for years. But his troubled soul did not find rest until he came upon that teaching that you're not justified by works and by all that you're doing for the church. You're justified simply by faith in Christ and Christ alone. In fact, I'm, I heard that when he wrote his own translation of the book of Romans in German, he inserted justified, justified by faith, justification by faith, and he added himself to his translation alone. I don't know if he felt like he needed to be an inspired writer of Scripture, but he just felt that it needed to be emphasized. And by the way, if you have a King James Version of the Bible, every time you see a word that's in italics, the translators added that to give more meaning to it. So before you kind of go off on Luther, you know, go back and tell King James they shouldn't have done that. So Teaching, training. We're going to get small groups going around here. Because in, uh, you know, we used to say, we almost used to say, small Pentecostal church where two or three are gathered together, there, he is in the midst of us, so we have the quota. We, we, can, we can have church. And it's kind of like we made that as well as the bare minimum that, that, that God needs to say, I'm going to be in the midst of you. But here I think there's a deeper meaning to that. I think when we're in that kind of close communion, we can discern the presence of the Lord a lot easier. And he has our attention a little bit easier. So sometimes the best time for people to learn is when they're sitting across the table from each other and they're being real. And they're sharing their soul. And there's no pretense. There's no like fear of whether they're going to be accepted or rejected because when you have two or three people you can share your soul with, you can grow in the Lord. And I think maybe that's why he said, where two or three are gathered, I'm going to be really in the midst of them because I've got their attention. There's less distractions. They can focus on what they're saying and they can be real with each other and they can pray for each other. Well, let me go back. I'm almost finished. Uh, we're doing pretty good tonight. Let me go back to outreach evangelism. This is the heart of the Great Commission. And by the way, this church should be filled on Sunday. It really should be filled. Skyland, I don't know, it might be filled. Circlewood, churches should all be filled. There's enough people in this city that's lost 
to fill up every church. There should be that kind of harvest. And we can, we can like say, well, the odds of that happen. Well, the gospel doesn't deal with odds. It deals with a commitment to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. Not the ones we think are more prone to accept it. And I only work on people that I feel like are going to be listening to what I have to say. But here's where, here is where I think we have to be real with ourselves. We are to love the world enough to take the gospel to them. We are to love their soul. Listen, being lost should be unacceptable to us. A lost person in our family should be unacceptable. We should not relegate it to maybe at some point in their life they're going to find the Lord. There should be more of an intensity in us than that. When we know that every day is the only day that salvation can be experienced and that nobody, nobody is promised another hour of life. Or another day. This is why he said today is the day of salvation. You cannot get saved on May 26th. You know it's impossible to get saved on May 26th. But that's the way we think. We think we're just going to have another day and our lost loved ones are going to have another day and we're not pressed. Being lost should be unacceptable. And being the very thought of being lost forever should be unacceptable. For our loved ones, it is unacceptable for them to be lost. Unacceptable. Death. Do you know death is not the ceasing of existence? Thanatos, the Greek word for death, is not the ceasing of existence. You remember in James, I believe it is, it says, the body without the spirit is dead. Just like faith without works is dead. He used that analogy that we're made up of body, soul, and spirit. And when we die, our body ceases to live, but our spirit continues to live. The spirit comes out of the body and as a believer goes into the presence of the Lord. If a person is lost, they descend into Hades, into a holding place and waiting for the white throne judgment to where their bodies are going to be resurrected and they're going to be judged and they're going to be forever commissioned to the lake of fire where Satan and fallen angels have their judgment. And you know what the Bible calls that? You know what the Bible calls that? The second death. And it's eternal. And I think Paul and I was exchanging some texts about Worldwide Church of God. How many remember that? And probably very few remember Herbert W. Armstrong, but probably most people in this room, if you remember, is his son that was a very persuasive 
apologist for the Worldwide Church of God, Gardner Ted Armstrong. You know who I'm talking about. And Gardner Ted Armstrong would make this eloquent defense that there's no such thing as an eternal hell. Because if you live forever in hell, that's like eternal life. I doubt if those people feel like they have eternal life. But then you would say, what God would, what God would make people suffer forever and ever in a lake of fire? And the reality is God doesn't. They commission themselves there. And, and when you talk about death, yesterday morning, I got a frantic phone call right about 7 o'clock when I was about to walk out of the house from Chrissy Beavers. I could not hardly understand anything she was saying other than I heard DCH, cars on fire, and I thought she said TJ, but I wasn't sure because I couldn't understand hardly a word she was saying. She was so hysterical. And I said, are you going to DCH now? She said, yes. I said, I'm heading there now. And I got there before her. And I I got word to Brenda. I sent out a prayer to and I think I even said, I'm not sure if it's TJ or not, but there's something that's happened. Please pray. But as I was praying, I said, Lord, if that's TJ... Rescue him. Rescue his life. Is If he is already deceased, wake his heart up, wake his brain up, wake him up and give him one more chance because you're not willing that he perish. You're not willing for him to be lost. And driving there, it was this reality that she pretty much thought he was dead. Because even on the news, that's how they found out that he had had a wreck because one of them saw it on the news in Birmingham and the car was totally engulfed in flames. And they had no idea his condition when we got to the ER. And we sat in the waiting room for about 20 minutes, still no word whether he was alive or dead. When a nurse came out, said, you're the mother she says, yes. She says, I'm going to take you back. He's okay. And you can almost feel people could breathe. Well, he had lacerated liver, lacerated spleen, broken rib, broken bone in his lower back. But I told, I told Chrissy this when she came back. I said, Chrissy, every Sunday night, I and a bunch of other people pray for TJ. Amen. And it wasn't luck that a U-Haul truck stopped behind that accident and two people got out of the U-Haul truck, ran over and dragged his body out of that car before it was engulfed in flames. They got back in that U-Haul truck and continued on. Nobody knows who they were. But I just believe maybe on a Sunday night, God arranged a U-Haul truck to be traveling right at that spot. Now, does he control our decisions? No. But he can superintend the situations around our decisions to rescue us from our decisions. And it was not luck. It was not good fortune. It was because prayer was being offered for that young man. And God wants to save his soul. 
And we have to come to a place the way we... How do we pray for our own lost family members? We ought to pray in such a way that it is unacceptable for them to be lost. It's just unacceptable. Lord, you have to press them and press them, and if you have to do something around them to get their attention, we release them to you. And even people we think that are not savable, I think God kind of smiles at us when we start thinking that way. Just like that guy that got saved in the hospital room all by himself without any preacher going up there. So y'all think I can't do this on my own, you know? I need y'all. You know, and I prayed the prayer that Karen said, whatever it takes for my brother. And without telling my wife, I, told, I shared some people that, Lord, if it ta- I was so burdened for my brother's salvation. I said, Lord, if it takes me, I would give up seeing my son born or whatever that child. I will give up my future if it rescues his eternity. As much as I want to be here, I can't fathom him spending eternity in hell. I cannot fathom that. And a few months later, before Jason was born, he called me up and said he got saved. And me being a great man of faith says, you shouldn't joke about stuff like that. I said, don't make fun of that. He said, I'm not making fun of that. And this glimmer of hope started. I said, you better not be messing with me. (laughs) He said, I'm not messing with you. He said, I was leaving. I was leaving Kay. I was leaving the kids. I was so miserable. I made everybody else miserable. And I was just at a point I couldn't take life anymore. And I was going to tell my kids goodbye. I was going to get in the car, drive somewhere. I wasn't ever coming back. I was messing up everybody's life. And I couldn't tell my little first grade daughter bye. And I dropped to my knees in my kitchen and said, God, if you're for real, please help me. And the Lord saved the rascal. Saved one of the meanest people that I've ever been around. Saved him. He was weeping, crying. Probably Kay thought he has lost his mind. From a beer-drinking, cussing rascal, here he is a sobbing, messed-up man standing up saying, something's happened in my life. And you know what I thought a few days after that? Lord, if it takes me dying. And, and I told people, in, 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 I told Brandon in this, I said, out here. I said, I could just see the Lord say, my, aren't we being dramatic today? You think I need to kill you? I can, I can save your brother without your drama. I thought, well, that was kind of foolish, I think. I'm glad you didn't do it that way. <laughs> I'm glad you saved him. But, but I tell you what, I believe the depth of my intercession for my brother and my mother's intercession for him and our family interceding, he was flirting with death all the time. He was, he was, in, he was in police chases. He was, just, he, was, he was arrested. He was in jail. He was fighting. He was, 
he wasn't afraid to die. He was too crazy. He didn't have any fear of death. He didn't have enough sense to know that he could be lost forever. But we all knew that. That's why we were so crying out to God for him. Because he was face, he was brushing up against death right and left. And I really believe God wants to get us to a place where we just cannot bear the thought of lost people spending eternity away from God. Not for us to spend eternity together, but for them to be banished forever from the voice of God and never to hear his whisper, never feel his embrace, never hear his love and the heartbeat of his love for them. That's tragedy. And I really believe, church, we ought to really take an inventory of ourselves and say, how desperate am I for people to know the Lord? God, make us desperate. God, give us a desperation. When that yard sale is out here on June the 4th, and the youth, that's good. It's a fundraiser. But there's going to be so many people walk through our parking lot. We ought to have a church full of people out there talking to them. Anytime people come on this property, what, what do we want them just to walk in there on Sunday? In hope that God touches their life? No. We, we, we ought to be out there saying, you are important to God. You matter to Him. Your life matters to Him. If you was the only person to ever walk this planet, Jesus would have died for your sins. That's how much you matter to God. And the revelation of that sink into their souls. And they said, you know what? I've been missing this. I need to surrender myself to the Lord. Would you stand with me?